0: Take your Bible and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're working through the book of Timothy. If you're newer here and you may uh, have not been involved in a church in the past that was what we call expository preaching, meaning we go through sections, books of the Bible, um, in in an order, in a way that they were written. uh, They were given in a way that they make sense, the sequence of the book. And so we follow that sequence. And it's just a way to protect ourselves from just cherry-picking, pulling the things out we want to talk about, and we're forced to talk about everything that God tells us to talk about and everything that he gives us. And so that's why we do what we do here at Grace. And so we're working through the book of 2 Timothy, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 7. Before we get into this, just want to say real quick, we did the H2O project a few weeks ago, and I'm proud to report that we uh, that we collected $1,311 for that. And I felt like for our first year getting going on this, that was a pretty solid Uh, contribution toward Living Water International. I think uh, as we do this each year, maybe right at the beginning of the Lent time, it could be something we could build up and be even bigger in the following years. But $1,311, and I know that some of you really took serious the fasting side of that, and it was really beneficial to you just to focus more on God and more dependence on Him. So thank you for contributing to that. Let's pray before we look at this text to Scripture. God, we thank you so much. For your word that you give us. Uh, If we were left to live this life without your word and without you and your Holy Spirit to bring your words to life, God, we would definitely be confused and we would make no meaning out of the the things that come to our life that are, are difficult and the suffering that happens. But we thank you that your word gives us meaning to everything that we encounter and we deal with. And God, today, as we seek to hear your voice through your word, that you will encourage those who need encouraging, inspire those who need inspired. And God, help us to run harder after you. In Jesus' name, amen. Just the background quickly for the book. Paul, the apostle, is writing from prison. And as was pointed out the last few weeks, he's nearing his execution. The time of his departure, by his words, is at hand. And he's writing to his protege, young Pastor Timothy, who's timid, He's uh, been maybe a little bit bullied by the false teachers, and Paul is encouraging him to accept his calling, fulfill your calling, Timothy, and to deal with these corrupt teachers. And in verse 1, he specifically tells him to be strengthened. Look at verse 1. He says, "'You then,' and he refers to Timothy as his child in the faith, my child, "'be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus.'" Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And I know if you're like me, when you're reading through passages of Scripture, sometimes we read, uh, uh, especially the first verse of a passage, and we just kind of think that's just needless remarks. You kind of skip that to get to the really the meaty stuff. But there's so much meat right there in that one verse that has to be discussed and dealt with. Just by way of illustration, back in the late 80s or early 90s, there was a very big popular combination of drugs that were put into a diet pill. You may have heard of it, it was called Fin, fin. Maybe some of you took that drug at that time, that, that diet pill at the time, and it promised and actually delivered really, really great results in the short term. This drug, I, I think some studies pointed that people who used this drug were losing up to 30 pounds of weight. Very successful, very recognized. I mean, it was wildly popular and as you can imagine, wildly abused as well. But what happened late in the, or in the middle 90s, it was determined that this drug had long-term health effects. In fact, people's heart valves were failing because of taking the drugs, that combination of drugs. And so it was pulled off the shelf. So think about it. Short-term it seems like a really, really great thing, right? I mean, I'm I'm seeing instant results. I'm seeing things happen. But long-term, it's disastrous for people's health. And we're guilty of doing the same thing spiritually. When we run to things that we think are strengthening our faith, but in the long run, they're doing nothing positive. They're actually causing great damage. That's what happens when we rely on anything besides grace in our, our seeking God through our sanctification, becoming more like Him. And so we substitute God's grace for man-made things and our fleshly way of thinking. Let me give you some examples, put some meat on this. When we compare ourselves to other people, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as Chris, right? I don't do what Chris does. And so we compare ourselves to other people, and that's a man-made way of building ourselves up to make us feel like we're stronger. Other ways, we compare ourselves to who we used to be. You know, I, I'm not perfect, but I, I'm sure not what I was a few years ago. I'm doing, you know, I'm doing pretty good. And, and this is not about seeing growth. This is about our pride and feeling better about ourselves because we've made some accomplishments. And so we become prideful. We become prideful in so many ways, good ways. I mean, things that are great. We can become prideful about our daily time in the Word, and we begin to look at other people and criticize them. Why are they doing that? It's not that hard. They should be getting up early and doing that. And we begin to build this system to make ourselves feel better and build ourselves up, so to speak. In reality, we're doing the same thing that a deadly combination of drugs did to people. It gave them the appearance like something good was happening in reality, it was, it was terrible damage to themselves. So thinking they're above certain sins, that's another way we do that. We think we're above that. How could, how could they do that? I could never, ever do that. We're immune to certain things. Failing to be mindful of our deep depravity and our sinfulness. We fail to really understand how bad we are apart from Jesus Christ. And we compare and we look at ourselves and think we're, we're not that bad. And we fail to admit our need for grace. Grace is the only thing that can bolster our hearts without the harmful and devastating side effects of pride. Let me say that again. We're saying it's on the screen. Grace is the only thing that can bolster our hearts without the harmful and devastating side effects of pride. And so he writes to Timothy and he says, Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Two questions come to my mind when I read that verse. Here they are. How are we strengthened by grace? How does that happen? How does that take place? And then the second one, why do we need to be strengthened by grace in the first place? Why do we need strength? Why do we need strength? Here's why we need strength. He's going to tell Timothy, and he tells us, you need strength because Real ministry is difficult. Real ministry to other people is tough. It's hard. In verse 2, he kind of lays out the format for what this ministry should look like, and this is difficult. He says, And what you, Timothy, have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, I want you to take that and I want you to entrust that to faithful men who will be able to teach other people also. What he's done there, he's described what we call discipleship, discipleship. Why is this so important? It's so important when we remember that we, those who are believers in here, you've been chosen by God to be an ambassador for Jesus' invisible kingdom to this world that you live in. You've been called to be an ambassador for this kingdom And it doesn't make sense to unbelievers because why would somebody be passionate about a kingdom that they can't see? And we've been given God's Word, which is about Himself. It describes who He is, His greatness. We've been given this Word, and it describes His rescue plan for humanity through Jesus Christ on the cross. And we've been given the Holy Spirit. And so we've been given this message, we've been entrusted with this message And this message is more important than anything else imaginable in life because if you truly believe this to be true, you realize that God says that what you represent has the power to send someone's soul to destiny with God forever in heaven or to be eternally separated from him forever in hell. And so you've been entrusted this message that has that kind of power, that this message you give to others as an ambassador for this invisible kingdom has that great of an impact. Could there be any bigger truth that you could possess other than that? There isn't. There's no way that anything else could be that important in your life. You've been entrusted with this. And so Paul is saying that Jesus personally gave him this truth and he's passed it on to his son in the faith Timothy and this isn't some kind of secret between Paul and Timothy in fact look back at the verse he says Paul says I've done this in the presence of many witnesses what does he mean by that it's the totality of Paul's teaching that he received from Jesus that he's passed on to the churches and he's passing it on he's saying now Timothy it's your job to entrust this message this truth this life altering eternal altering Truth to faithful men who are able then to teach other people also. Discipleship. So look at the picture, just to make it simple, the picture on the screen, just a graph that shows you. Put up the graph there that shows you the picture of Timothy received the message from Paul. Paul received it from Jesus. Now, Timothy, you're to, post, you're to pass it on to faithful men and women who then can entrust it to other people also. There's this chain that exists. And that's why I said ministry is hard because to take the truth that's been given to us and invest so strongly in someone else that then they're so passionate about that truth that they're going to turn around and they're going to invest in another person who's going to invest in a person after that. That's this picture of discipleship that Paul's talking about. Timothy, I've entrusted this. Now, you don't just say, okay, I've got my truth, it's all I need. Timothy, you're so passionate about this truth. I've invested in you. You believe it so strongly. You're going to pass it on to faithful men, and those faithful men are going to get it so strongly, and they're going to believe in it so much that they're going to pass it on to the next group of people. Discipleship. And so we use that word a lot. We say that word a lot here. Here's a definition for you if you're following along in the church app. It's there. Discipleship is intentionally, keyword, equipping Believers with the Word of God through accountable relationships empowered by the Holy Spirit in order to replicate, reproduce faithful followers of Jesus Christ. That's what we've been called to do. Paul passed it on to Timothy, Timothy, the faithful men who will pass it on to others also. Replicating, reproducing ourselves. So a disciple submits to his teacher. Who is submitting to Jesus Christ? You follow me as I follow Jesus. And so Timothy, although he's in charge of preaching and teaching to the entire congregation, Paul's exhorted and told him that several times, this gets much more personal. It's up close kind of relationship. I'm gonna illustrate this in a way that hopefully you can remember, Brooks, if you can help me out and grab those things I asked you to. I'm not a I'm not a golf player. I, I play like once a year or so, but um, I, I think this is a beautiful illustration, and I'm a, a novice, so this even speaks really true to me. And so I got three different clubs. Thanks, Brooks. Appreciate it. Got three different clubs. I want you to think about this club. What's this club called? Anybody know? Driver. Right. This is your driver. All right. So I want you to think about this club as kind of like the showy kind of club. All right, this is the thing that everybody who's a novice like me, this is what wows a person. Because why? If you if you know nothing about golf, this is what happens when people put the ball on the little tee, and they get up before. Uh, and usually, you know, if you're watching it on TV, or if your husband's watching it, and, and this is what they show and they brag on. Whoa! Look at that drive. And the guy hits this thing like what 300 350 I don't know what the length that people are hitting in the professionals how far can somebody hit a golf ball 325 so uh, uh, somebody in here may be able to hit it 275 to 300 maybe and that's impressive stuff right and so so think of that this is like preaching and teaching is that this is kind of like what everybody sees and and we sit back and we're like wow you know oh I'm so encouraged by that message whoa look at how far that went today well that's an incredible message and sometimes we think this is all there is. This is the show, all right? This is the big money hit, right? I mean, this is like everybody's wowed by it. But the truth is, this is not all there is. In fact, those who play golf know that these clubs, called your irons, are critical. These are finesse clubs. These are for accuracy. These are for... You, thanks. You can... You Appreciate it. These are. These are... Uh, the clubs that you use for shorter distances, but they take great skill and great accuracy to use them correctly. You have a 2, a 3, a 4, a 5, 6, whatever, iron, and you pick out the one that's particular for the distance that you need. And I think of this as kind of like small groups, K groups. I think of this as a time when there's feedback going. You're, you're in there, and it's not somebody up here preaching. They're not just like driving. You're like, wow, what a great talk. This is discussion, and you're being asked the questions and giving feedback on it. But then there's this other club that people like me think, you know what, if I want to play golf, this is something, you know, you might go play putt-putt, you know, get the windmills and try to hit the ball through there onto, into the little hole. Just your putter, all right? If you've ever played putt-putt, this is what you used, all right? And And they say that the expression is you drive for show and you putt for what? For putt for dough, right? You putt because this is where it separates the average players from the great players. What they do on the greens. The short game. The little game. And I think of discipleship as like the short game. I think of it as like the, the time where there's not a lot of fanfare. There's not a lot of attaboys. And what a great sermon or great talk you gave. It's very personal. It's very up close. But it's so, so important. And we need all of these, but we critically need this element if without it the church is not growing and the church is not achieving what it should be achieving and you personally are missing out and not growing and not becoming what God has called you to be. And so I want to encourage you as we talk about this idea of discipleship again today, and Paul points to it a lot, that you don't ignore this aspect of your life that you don't think, well, I'm a Sunday morning kind of Christian. No, you need all of these elements into your life if you're going to be the ambassador God has called you to be. Over the last couple of weeks, I kind of promoted this cross-centered life. And this was all this was is, is a way for people who've never done discipleship before in a small group, a really, really tiny, you know, two, three group, four possibly, to jump in and be involved in a way that you could only commit to eight weeks, and it it can be something that's very achievable this book if you those of you who are doing it it's super easy read but it's really really meaty stuff and in fact uh, i asked some of the people who signed up and are part of this i asked them to put together just a short little video with their phone and send it to me of why they decided to stand up st- uh, sign up for this and so here's uh, Scott um, yeah Scott and uh, Allison and Shelley telling us why they signed up go ahead with that video a few months
1: ago and John was preaching about the Sunday morning attendee, the person who came to church on Sunday morning and filled his cup up, so to speak, and then it would run over throughout the week and then he'd come back on Sunday morning to fill his cup back up and I was that type of person. I learned during the pandemic that I need other people. I definitely need other people during my walk and um, so I wanted to be intentional about carving out time to disciple and be discipled so that um, you know I can be held accountable for the things that I learned in scripture and for my spiritual walk I wanted to be really um, intentional about um, my time with the Lord and um, this was just a way that um, um, I would be held accountable the Lord laid it on me to be more involved to be more active in his word and so this this discipleship has allowed me a chance to meet with some people to study the word on a more uh, personal basis, and continue on a spiritual path and, and to grow in his word. Um, I think that's one of the great gifts that we have as, as human beings, is the is the ability to encourage each other and to call each other out when we need to, and um, that's why I chose to do it. You know, they meeting with someone and um, discussing things just forces me to do what um, I'm planning to do and um, not get distracted. A few months ago
0: when John was preaching about... Yeah, I think it's going back over again here. Go to the next. Yeah, go off that. Thanks. Um, And so there you heard it. Accountability, uh, things that you plan to do, just I need help doing that. And that's what we're talking about here with this idea of discipleship. And so when he talks to Timothy and he says, you're going to need great strength for this task of living this out. And in fact... He wants to so emphasize this that he gives three specific illustrations to show the difficulty of the task that was at hand. Look at the first one is in verse 3. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So Paul says to Timothy, this task of sharing the gospel, of living out, of taking the message and entrusting it to someone else, who then is going to train somebody else and trust it, it's going to require great suffering, like a soldier who is in combat. People during Paul's time were literally facing serious physical suffering as a result of the gospel, but suffering is true for us as well. I'll point this out in a minute, but before I do, I want you to just dwell on this picture. If discipleship, if you need strength, if you need to be strengthened by grace— He says, it's like a soldier in combat. Who's been in the military? Raise your hand if you've been in the military. Raise your hand. All right. Keep your hand up if you've been in combat. All right. Well, Jerry is one of the guys I knew who had been in combat. And I asked him to just put together a 45-second video with me to just share what is it like to be in combat? Because if you're going to be serious about this discipleship thing, you need to know what's involved. And Paul says, suffer like a soldier. So show Jerry's video.
1: Being a soldier in itself is is you're making a
0: commitment to
1: to do something that's bigger than who you are. In combat, you're gonna suffer quite a bit, suffer physically, you're gonna suffer mentally, you're gonna suffer emotionally. Um, But despite the suffering, it's all worth it. The mission is always, always worth the suffering. You'll suffer through pain, Uh, You'll suffer through hardship, you'll suffer through anger, and you'll even suffer through loss. But despite all the suffering, you still have to focus on what's ahead of you, what's bigger than you. Despite the physical, the mental, the emotional suffering that soldiers experience in combat, it can never be about you. There's always a bigger picture. There's always a, a greater mission to achieve. And the suffering
0: can't ever change the outcome of that. So think about that for a second. Paul says it's like a person in combat. Why would that be the case? Look at verse 4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. You know what that tells me? Here's why Paul made the comparison. Because you have to have this wartime mindset about you and not be entangled with civilian pursuits. Are you hearing that? That means that Paul says, look, all the stuff in this world that brings us pleasure and makes us lazy and makes us just carefree, you got to be aware of those things because those things are not to be definitive of your life. That's not who you are. You're a soldier, Timothy. And not just you, you're passing it on to other guys, so it's not just the apostles and a few select others. You're passing this on to other people who are going to pass that mindset on to them people after that. And I think that's why the comparison there with a soldier, because that is sure not easy. That's difficult. You have to have the constant strength of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, because it's so easy to give up and quit. Because why? This world has so much to offer. It does. So many pleasures. And we live in the richest country that ever existed in the history of the world. And it's so easy to lose the wartime mindset and think, you know what? Discipleship, that's for the big-time Christians. That's for the, you know, hardcore guys. It's not for just normal people like me. And you're missing what Paul says. Where are you at down the line? Are you the faithful men or the others also? But you're somewhere in that category. And so it includes you as well. And then, as if a soldier, that wasn't enough, right? Then he goes on. Look at verse 5. An athlete, one of Paul's favorite metaphors, an athlete is not crowned, and that was what they would do to the winners of the games at that point, give them a crown, unless he competes according to the rules. So here's what he's saying. He says, this requires effort, strength to exert an effort similar to an athlete who competes to win. Effort similar to an athlete who competes to win. This is not just a guy who shows up at the gym to play basketball once a week. This is an athlete who's working toward winning the prize. They want to be the best. They want to be superior to all others. And so he says, you need to be like that. And you don't spend your effort and your hard work and your discipline and then just live this way any way you want. He says, you got to compete by the rules. There's a certain discipline, and it's obeying God's word in your pursuit of spiritual victory. And I sure don't say this illustration to beat up upon beat up upon this guy, on this guy who has passed away. And I mentioned r- briefly the story the other day, but I couldn't help but to keep coming back to a guy named Ravi Zacharias, who was an incredible apologist, who just really seemed to exemplify somebody who just understood the message of God in a way that could articulate it to people who had intellectual questions or barriers there, and it was found out toward the end of his life, and as he, and after he died, a a just big scandal came out where he was literally living this double standard, and he thought he was entitled to it because of his notoriety, his popularity, his influence, who he was, and he thought that he was entitled to these frivolous ways of living, this carefree way of living because of who he was in the kingdom. You know what? He's a perfect example of someone who did not play by the rules. He said, I'm throwing out this book. I know all about it, but I'm throwing it out because I think my way is better. And I'm entitled to, to, to come up with my own way of living. And it's so sad and it's so tragic for the kingdom of God. And it reminds me, of a verse that we looked at back in 1 Timothy, where Paul wrote, Keep a close watch on yourself, Timothy, and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. You play by the rules, Timothy. You don't think you're above this. You don't shipwreck your faith. You stay faithful. Keep a close watch on yourself. And then he goes to the next illustration. He goes to the hardworking farmer, verse 6. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So you got a soldier in combat. you got an athlete who's competing to win, and he's playing by the rules. And you have a hardworking farmer. And again, like a soldier, I've never been a farmer. Farmed a few things in my backyard, doesn't count. But a farmer... What is a farmer's life like? Some of you know. I asked Mac to put together a little video to tell me, what's a farmer's uh, world like? What's it like on a day-to-day basis? Here's Mac giving a little video about farming.
2: I love what I do. And uh, we're actually in the fields right now, working, planting sweet corn and uh, field corn, small grain. Uh, A little later on, we'll start planting peanuts, and then it follows with cotton. It's an ongoing cycle. of something to do, uh, we just have to be joyful. There's a lot of skill, a lot of out manpower hours to get this uh, crop in the ground uh, and gather. There's a lot of there's hope. You hope everything's going to come up. You hope you're going to get uh, rain and uh, uh, sunlight. Work nonstop without falter um and you know try to do your best and just love what you do which if you're a farmer you gotta love what you do
0: i love that he said hard hard work but if you're a farmer you love what you do and that's the thing about discipleship that's the thing about investing other people's lives it's sure not glamorous it's sure not the driver it's sure not the wood And you're hitting it, and everybody's saying, wow, amazing. It's the hard struggle, but when the crop comes up, look, Paul says, you get to see the first share. You get to have part of the share of the crop. When you see the work that you're doing is being passed on, and that person's getting it, and then they're excited to share it with somebody else, then you're like, man, that's awesome. That's what it's about. That's exactly what God's been teaching us. It's not just about me turning inward on myself, about my life for me. It's about my life for others, for the kingdom. And I talked to Trey McCaw, who's also a farmer, and he, he emphasized farming is about total dependence upon God, especially during a time when you may not have irrigation as Paul would not have had during that time. And even today. He said that there's many times that you, some fields are dry fields, meaning you're just depending upon the rain to come, and you're relying upon God. And so he talked about how you just pray and ask God, send the rain. And what a great picture and analogy, and I don't want to carry that too far for what Paul had in mind here, but I think this is true in discipleship. This idea of farming, is, is, it's got to be supernatural, because some of you know you can try all you want to influence somebody. You can struggle and effort and then be disappointed tremendously that somebody can either have a secret life going on or they can be doing something else or really end it for the wrong reasons or they just quit on it because it's too hard or too difficult. It's not glamorous. Discipleship's not glamorous. But when we see that growth, when we notice things just sprouting and happening, that's exciting. And we, we, we celebrate that. And so it's the hardworking farmer who celebrates that it's all God when that happens. This a, a really good example. I don't think Brennan's in here this morning, but a few weeks ago, Brennan had the idea of doing an early morning Bible study with um, our our sons. And it starts at seven a.m. over at the youth house on Wednesday. For the idea of not just another Bible study, but to train these boys on how to teach Scripture. And so, there's five boys, five sons over the last five four weeks have been learning, and Richard's been part of that too. Richard taught as well, teaching these guys how you can take God's Word and teach God's Word to others. Now, starting next Wednesday, these boys will be, or actually the following Wednesday, will be taking the Word and teaching it to their peers. That's amazing. That's exactly what we're talking about. And this isn't just for an exclusive group. Any dads and sons can be part of this. Uh, It's at 7 to eight, And if you need to be at school, you can cut out early and leave with your son to get him to school on time. But I encourage anybody who would like to be a part of that, dads and sons, to be a part and come. Even if your, your son's small, Graham came, his son's, how old's your son? Seven months. So, you know, he ain't getting a lot of passing on at this point much. But it's still, it's still a great opportunity as dads just to learn more and to grow. And so this is the idea. And so back to verse 1. He said, you then, my son, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So I hope I've made my case why you need strength. An athlete, a farmer, a soldier. The soldier doesn't say, hey, I'm leaving the battlefield. I'm going to find the, the pub nearby. I'll be back in a little bit. That doesn't happen. He stays focused. The athlete who's in training can't cut corners if he's going to win the prize. Run as if to win. The farmer knows that if he doesn't put in the back-breaking work, the crop will fail. And that's the picture of why you need to be strengthened. But now, how? How are we strengthened? How can we be strengthened? And and this is so critical. And so I hope you'll stay with me here. A couple things. One is, to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, you must be clear on your standing in Christ. Let me say that again. To be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, you must be clear on your standing in Christ. I say this a lot. Satan blinds the minds of people, the hearts of people, to the simple truth of the gospel. It's either I've got to work, I've got to earn it, I've got to merit it, I've got to get there in order for God to accept me, or it's some mixture of my works and God's grace that's going to get me there, that's going to get me in the door. You have to be crystal clear on the fact that there's nothing that you can do to add to your salvation. It was done completely and totally by Jesus Christ. And all we do is believe. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. We put our faith and trust completely and totally. That's grace. And so you have to understand who you are in Christ. You're standing in Christ. Why you received salvation in the first place, it was what grace is, unmerited favor. He gave you favor that you did not deserve. You did not earn. You could never earn. Yet the battle goes on, and every religion in the world, apart from Christianity, buys into this idea, this God or this force, Or this power out there can be achieved if I do something to earn it. And Jesus said, I did it all. The Son of God would not have to come and die on a cross if there was something we need to do on top of that, right? Could you say or do any more that shows the grace that God has? And so please listen to me and hear me. It's all grace. Because so many people walk out of church and you catch them on the street and you say, how do you? Come to Christ. Well, I just hope, you know, at the end that my good works outweigh my bad, or, you know, I hope I get in, I hope I make it. And it's about their effort, not Jesus Christ. It's all Jesus. And so you need to be un- clear of your understanding of, of your standing in Christ that you did nothing to earn or deserve it. The second thing how we are strengthened by grace that is in Christ Jesus. You must avoid appeals to become godly through legalism. You must avoid the appeal to become godly through legalism. Some of you may be saying, what's legalism? Legalism is an attempt to be holy by keeping certain standards without dealing with your heart before God. It's keeping these rules, often man-made rules, when the heart isn't in tune with God whatsoever. And so we understand that self-discipline is critical, but it doesn't substitute for grace. You can't work your way to be more like Jesus either. Yes, we're motivated to work by grace, but we don't earn additional standing or holiness through our efforts. Even that is a gift. What I like to say is the same way that you came to Christ, by grace through faith, The same way you live the Christian life, by grace, through faith. That you see God's grace, you see His unmerited favor upon you. And out of that just becomes this this, this wholeness of love and, and, and pursuit of God, because you see what He's done for you. And while I think this definition of sanctification, which is the process of a Christian becoming more like Jesus, is a little bit lacking. I think it's still, there's a lot, it adds to my understanding of sanctification. The Lutherans say this they say, Just, a sanctification, becoming more like Christ, is the art of getting used to your justification, meaning what God declared you to be, holy and righteous. Do you follow me on that? And so it's getting used to, it's understanding, it's, it's really wrapping your mind and your heart around what God did for you in Jesus Christ. And that's how you grow. Now, I think it may be a limited definition because it does leave out literally the hard work and effort that is part, that comes out of grace. But I get it. That's the first, that's, it starts there. It, it doesn't start with, I'm going to work and then hopefully my heart will come back around. God changes our heart and he moves our heart through grace and through what he did in Christ. And so legalism is no substitute. And, if, and as I said at the beginning if you rely upon legalism, you're just working the opposite of what grace is all about because you're full of pride and you'll be judgmental and critical and you'll look at people always with a critical eye. Why aren't they getting it? Why don't they measure up? Why aren't they where I am at? And it'll be counter to your sanctification because pride is an egregious sin. It's terrible. It's awful. And it'll destroy your life. And then the third one. To be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, you must be weak in yourself, but strong in his sufficiency. You must be weak in yourself, but strong in his sufficiency. What does that mean? That means that we don't, as Paul Tripp says, fear our weaknesses. We fear the delusion of strength. When we start to think, kind of got this, that's when we're in danger. Be careful if you think you're standing you're gonna fall. It's a constant dependence upon God for anything that you can do in your life that's gonna be kingdom valuable. It's every day starting your day that says, I've got nothing if you don't show up. I've gotta lean so strongly into this word to give me life today so I can be an ambassador for you and share you with others. Because anytime I think I'm good enough, listen. I'm good enough to start my day without Jesus, without his word, without relying upon him, without admitting my weakness, you're in great danger. Here you are, Christian across your chest, walking around town, and you have no sense of your neediness, yet you're trying to represent him. And Somebody comes up and says, hey, you go got a Grace Church, right? Maybe you'll get lucky and say the right things. But if you're not leaning into God every single day and saying, I need you, I need you, you're going to fail the kingdom. And so many of you struggle with a constant dependence, a consistent dependence upon God. And it's a dangerous place to be in your life because you're saying I'm a Christian, but there's no strength there that you can pull from. You're not waiting in the pool of his grace on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. And pride sinks in because you think, I got it. I got it. I don't need it. I got it. I'm doing this. And you may not cognitively process that, but that's what your actions are saying. I got this on my own, God. I don't need you that much. So here is the application. Hands and heart, I'm sorry, head and heart together, verse 7. Paul says, Timothy, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. That's the application. Think over these things. Don't leave them here and walk out and say, well, Pastor John hit that thing about 250 yards today. That's pretty impressive, right? Good stuff. Let's go to lunch. Let's move on with our day. If you do that, you're a hearer of the word and not a doer. And you deceive yourself, James says. Think over what I say. Ponder it. Pray about it. Consider it. Spend real, listen, real time processing it. God will give you understanding in everything. And then the hands application. Either you're in one of these two categories. If you're a Christian, I need to be discipled or I need to be discipling somebody. I need to be discipled or I need to be discipling somebody else. There's no middle ground. There's nowhere somewhere else. It's one of those two. I need to be sharing my life intentionally with someone, or I need somebody to be building into my life. So what are you going to do about that? What are you going to do in response? If you're not seeking God, if you're not broken, you're not saying at the top of your prayer list, God, I got nothing today if you don't show up. I need you. I'm dependent upon your grace. If you're not starting there, then you don't need discipleship. But if that is your cry of your heart, you're like, man, I need some guys in my foxhole with me. I need some people. I need some guys who are going to hold me accountable, look me in the eye and say, are you doing the right thing in your marriage? Are you doing the right thing at your work? Are you living a life of integrity? You need that. I need that. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your words. Words that give us life and hope and meaning and purpose. And God, I pray that you'll help our church to live these truths out. People are watching. Even one of our guests today said, I'm, I'm, I'm checking your church out to see if the people are there living out what they say they believe. Thank you for that reminder. God, the world is watching, people are watching. And most importantly, you're watching. And God, help us to be motivated by the incredible grace that you extended to us. That you reached out for us when we were unloving, unlovable. We were disasters. And we love because you first loved us. God, I pray we'll respond to that.
2: In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.